0: Welcome everybody to Beauty IQ, the podcast. I'm your host, Joanna Fleming. And
1: I am your co-host, Hannah First. Before you listen to today's episode, we do want to flag that the content of this interview might be upsetting or triggering to some listeners. Today's guest is living with stage four cancer in her mid-twenties and using her own experience to drive home the importance of sun safety. So while this interview may be really hard to listen to, It could also be the push you needed to get a skin check, use SPF, or make more sensible sun safety choices. I first read Natalie's story on Birdie a couple of years ago now, and I remember I was sitting at my desk in the office and the Birdie email landed in my inbox, and it was at that moment after I had read Natalie's story that I made a decision to also advocate for sun safety. I'll admit I was the uncool friend that was telling all of their friends that sunbaking was no longer a cool thing. And as a teen in my early 20s, people might be surprised to learn that I used to sunbake and I smashed the solarium. I'd go all the time. I would tan myself until I was as dark as I could possibly be. And I had all these feelings of guilt come up as I read Natalie's story and a lump in my throat, imagining how scary this experience must have been for her. Natalie was just 20 years old when she was first diagnosed with melanoma. So instead of us telling that story, Natalie, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a long time in the works. We did plan on interviewing you a while ago, but can you tell us for our listeners who may not have heard your story on any other platforms, how you first got diagnosed with melanoma and the journey that you've been on since? Because we know it's been a long one. It definitely has been a long one, but I just want to say first, thanks so much for having me. I love your podcast, honestly, and
2: I love you both. Oh. So, I am so. <laughs> So, so like excited to be. We're here. glad. <laughs> yeah, so my story starts six years ago, because now I'm 26 and it just kind of hurts that it's been going on for this long. But basically, I've had that, I've had a mole on my toe for a very long time. My mum thinks it was there when I was about about three or four years old. Like, so I wasn't born with it. But um, she's like, no, I noticed it. We constantly got it checked. And it actually grew to quite a substantial size where my mum took me to a skin doctor when I was about 13 and she asked him, oh, like, can we get it removed? Like, it looks, it's pretty big, like, I don't like it. And he said, to be honest, it looks completely fine the way it is, but if we were to get it removed, it's not like a simple surgery where you can just do it kind of like in the doctor's office, you'd need to like have a a full-blown surgery because I'd require a skin graft and all that kind of stuff. And so my mum was like, Oh, okay. Well, if you say that, you know, doctor's orders, we're following your like advice, everything's been okay. Well, then, okay. We'll just keep an eye on it, which is pretty much what we did up until 2014 when I was 20. I was like any kind of fresh 20 year old, I suppose. I was, you know, at uni working part time naive of anything that could jeopardize my health because I thought I was invincible as most 20-year-olds do. And then I was on a top deck trip when I realized that something was wrong. So I was sailing in Greece. That just sounds so far away right now, especially given <laughs> the current times. Um, yeah, I was sailing in Greece when I woke up one morning and I had 52 bruises like all over my legs. Wow. And I remember waking up, looking at my friend and I was like, what did I do last night? Like last night was super chill. We didn't do anything. We just hung around on the beach and went to sleep. And I was like, did I sleepwalk? Did I run into things? Did I don't know. And she was like, no, nothing. You haven't left the bedroom. And I was like, okay. And so I said, I remember sending a photo to my dad and being like, Hey dad, like this has just happened. And he was like, okay, well, that's obviously not normal. We'll obviously get you checked out. And I wasn't due to come home for another two weeks. I, In the back of my mind, though, I had this really niggling feeling. I was like, it's got to do with this mole. Because in the last couple of days, just before the bruises happened, the mole had started to change. It was starting to become really annoying in terms of wearing sandals. It was on a place like just below your toenail. It like never saw the sun. I, for one, was never a sun person. Like I don't really go outside. <laughs> my mum is South American and when she came to Australia when she was 16, she was absolutely terrified that sharks were everywhere. And so <laughs> she um kind of like led that on to my brother and I. And so we didn't really go to the beach. Like I was never one to go outside without some safety like my mum knew so my brother and I were those kids if we would go at the beach once a year we're talking once a year it would be like in a full-on rashy that zipped up to your neck and had the (laughs) disgusting hat flap and oh my god it was like fluoro and it was orange and it was disgusting but that was me as a kid like slapped in sunscreen I knew about melanoma but like I was like I thought I was pretty safe but then when this mole started to change in my gut, I was like, Oh my God, something's off. So as soon as I got home, it was this insane whirlwind of appointments. And it was, I went to a GP. She took one look at it and she's like, this needs to come out like right now. And I was like, okay, went to a dermatologist literally two days later. And he was like, I'm going to do biopsies and I wasn't prepared for it. And it was like a lot of blood and a lot of needles and. A lot of tears because you need to have mentally prepare for things like that. And I was not ready. And then he sat me down afterwards and he just threw out the word, Oh, I'm sending you to an oncologist. And I was like, Excuse me? Like I thought we were just getting a mole removed. Mm. And he was like, I don't like the look of this mole. It's a what we later found out is a Spitz-Nevis mole. And they just tend to be a little bit more scarier than your average kind of mole. So they're just a lot darker. They are a lot more aggressive in terms of they can have precancerous cells in it. And so, yeah, my mum and dad were freaking out. they were like, okay, it's the right thing to do. Like we haven't been told anything yet. And so I went to see my oncologist uh, at 20, which was bizarre. And she sat me down We talked through all what happened and she goes, the mole's coming out tomorrow. And I was like, what do you mean tomorrow? I've never had surgery in my life. And she's like, I've booked you in 10 a.m. That thing's coming out. We're doing a skin graft on your leg. And I was like, okay. And like, I remember the date, like it was the 15th of of October. Like I remember I was sitting there going, oh my God, I'm going to have to have surgery. And Like it just, I think that's when it settled that this was like really massive. And so, yeah, I... Was like okay, well, what's the likelihood of it being melanoma or something like skin skin cancer, anything sinister? And she's like, to be honest, there's a very likely chance, but it now depends on if we got it in time. And I was like, what do you mean? And she's like, I can't tell you for sure yet if it's cancer, but I'm just saying I don't like the look of this mole, but that's why it's coming out tomorrow. And naturally, like, I freaked out. Mm, How terrifying! Yeah, like a twenty-year-old existential crisis, and then. I went and had the surgery, and I had to get this really painful kind of test where they have to check where your lymph nodes are in your body, and like, oh, they inject things, and it's just so not comfortable. Like, I'd had the biopsy done on the mole on the toe, and they actually had to inject what felt like hot iodine into where they've taken stuff out, and so I actually like was screaming and kicked this I nearly kicked this guy in the face because yeah. I was like, they had to like find the pathways, and I was like. I was traumatized like that's something I also mm. really vividly remember. And so I had that operation, went back to her office and everything. They had the results in about like 3 to 7 days. And then I just knew. Like you have this gut feeling, we're all pretty in tune with ourselves and mm. when she sat me down, I was with my dad and she just dad asked like straight away, "Oh, what are the results?" and she like didn't answer and I was like, "Yeah, we're f- like, I just I knew straight away I was like oh my god and so she was like Natalie I'm really really sorry to say but this is melanoma and it looks like it's very aggressive I didn't hear anything after that like I, I genuinely yeah. don't recall what she said after you have cancer I was just everything went blank so yeah it was insane and pretty much what followed was like this manic kind of race against time because melanoma is really aggressive and it likes to travel fast and because of my type of melanoma which I'll clarify for everyone wasn't caused by the sun it was genuinely this mole just one day decided to change and Mm -hmm. you can't tell when or where I asked them how long when did it start and they were like it could have been literally four weeks ago could have been six months ago like we don't know once it gets going it starts and I was like All right. And so it was this race against time to try and figure out if it had moved. And so basically, if it moves from your point of origin, you get higher in the stages that we know of cancer. So the stage one, two, three, and four. And unfortunately, after a surgery, another surgery to find out if it was in my lymph nodes, I was classified as stage three, which is pretty horrific. And so stage three meant that it had traveled into my lymph nodes and that it had moved from its origin site, which also just then presented a lot of challenges in itself because it meant that my melanoma, even though it was only one millimeter, had deposited into my lymph node, the main lymph tree in my groin, it was like, this thing's a bastard. It's just going hundred miles an hour. And so I was like, okay, well, what happens next? And my oncologist, she was very sweet. She sat down with me and she just said, look, it's up to you. But I think at this moment in time, this is only six years ago. So this goes to show how far cancer treatment has come. But there was not immunotherapy six years ago that I could go on. And she said to me, the only option pretty much was to cut everything out. And we're talking like a hacking. So she was like, I want to go in there and cut out all your lymph nodes in your groin. Which would leave me with kind of like a dip right in my groin and a massive scar. And she goes, and I want to cut off your toe. And I remember just going, What? My toe? Like, I get it, but how weird. Because with any type of skin cancer and melanoma, you need margins. And granted, when you look at your fingers or you look at your toes, you don't have much room to cut anything out. So she was like, I need to get rid of the whole thing. And I was like, Oh my God. I, I genuinely was like, I don't know what to say. Like in theory, I understand that it's like has to happen but then she was like I'm gonna let you sit with it for a few days mm. and then you come back to me and you tell me what you want to do and I remember I had um my best friend's 18th that night or the following night and I literally cornered the one friend who was studying to be a doctor because I was like I can't make these decisions for myself so I asked my fellow 18 year old friend who was studying to be a doctor what the fuck would you do and he just goes <laughs> get rid of it and I was like cool based off your advice I'm going to chop off my dough <laughs> and Yeah, now I can look back at it and like laugh a little bit because it was like very dramatic. But at the time it was like, oh, my God. Yeah. So, yeah, I had my toe chopped off. I had the major lymph node dissection, which leaves me with lymphedema now. So I have a swollen leg that requires a lot of maintenance. And then after that, I was in the clear for four years. So... In some way, thankfully, it was like they told me it's not necessarily gone, like they got everything. What can happen is what often happens with melanoma is that it's a very dormant disease. So even though there was one millimetre that had deposited in my lymph nodes, there's no saying that like one decided to deposit, like a millimetre decided to deposit there, there could be another millimetre that was just floating around in my bloodstream and one day it would just decide to attach to something. So there was absolutely no way of being like, this is officially gone. Yes, we have in cancer talk. There's like this five year remission kind of goal thing that if you hit the five years of healthy scans, you're like kind of in the clear. And I was so close to that. I had changed unis. Definitely. Like I had to have a whole, there's this common thing that like people say, like when you have cancer, you have like a major life epiphany and it's true. You definitely do, but you also just kind of think of it as a kind of like a curse because you always think of the other side of the coin and you're like, I just want to be normal. Mm -hmm. And so those four years were really, I was already like, you know, trying to navigate my identity and like all that. I was 20 years old, 21 by the time this was all over. And I remember just being like, I don't know what to do with my life. And I talked to my team and they were like, well, what are you passionate about what you're doing at uni and I was like I don't know what I'm passionate about at all and because it was like a really big scare and like what was so now that I look back at that year it was like it was over so fast like in the space of five to six months it was like I'd gone from being diagnosed to having surgery and then I was in recovery and it was like okay well now you're okay your scans look fine off you pop and I was like what the f-? like I can't go back to life now. And so I struggled a lot and I sat down with my other oncologist and he was like, I think it's best if you start a new degree, get some change, just like start afresh. And to hear that, I think I was like 21. I was like, all my friends had finished uni already by then. And I was like, are you seriously telling me that I have to start from scratch? In theory, and like in the back of my head, I was like, no, I think that's the right thing because like, I need this for me. But there's always a part of you that constantly compares to others. And you're like, I'm not going to be at the same stage of life of everyone. I have different problems. I had, I still do like major body image issues with this leg that I now have. I'm covered in scars. So it was this huge, yeah, identity crisis. I eventually found my footing and I got a new degree, met new friends, let go of old ones. And then like I started to find my footing. And then life just went to shit again in 2018 and it's been pretty shit ever since. So in 2018, I'd come back from an exchange trip. And so I was really proud of myself that I did that because when you're constantly aware of your own health, you're also aware of all the things you can't do and how you're very conscious that some things may be the last time. So I went and I did it and I was I fell in love as you normally do overseas. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Kinda knows. <laughs> Natalie, I don't fall in love anywhere else except overseas. So I get it. it's
2: just <laughs> there's something about it, right? Like
0: there's no one here in Australia for me. <laughs> I get it.
2: Well, yeah, I felt the same. I felt the same. And um yeah, I ended up falling in love and I was happy and I was like, oh my god, is this what happiness is? Because I'd felt I hadn't felt happy in a long time. But then I came home and I had a routine scan and the routine scan showed that two nodules were attached to my lungs and they were like, it it could be just like inflammation or it could be melanoma. And I'm like, nah, mate, I know it's melanoma. Like we said it was going to come back one day and it just happened that it was then. And so pretty much since 2018, I have been fighting this thing so hard and Trying different drugs, different combinations. Last year, it got pretty scary that it attached itself um, in a part of my body called the duodenum, which is pretty much a very narrow tube that was where your food goes through into your stomach and small intestine or whatever. Oh my god! If like doctors are listening to this, they'll be like, Nah, man, she's got that wrong. I don't remember. But anyway, <laughs> basically, it's a very important tube and. If it gets closed off, it's kind of life-threatening. And they found that my tumour was already taking up half of it. And I was complaining just of simple things like gastritis because I was like, oh, and we all thought it was all this steroid medication that I was taking because I have now what is called hypoadrenalism, pretty much the immunotherapy that I was on, which was working as we all thought it was, it absolutely cucked my main hormone in my brain. So I kind of don't have a fight-or-flight response anymore. And I need to take synthetic drugs to fix that. And so we all thought that it was, I'd been on these steroids for a year by now. And we all thought, oh, it was just my stomach lining, not liking these steroids. And so no one gave it a second thought. And when I look back now in hindsight, I'm like, we were so naive, like we should just any ache and pain, which usually I would think it would be like, it's something like it's definitely the melanoma again. But for some reason, I just didn't put two and two together. And then I, it got to the point where I couldn't eat and I couldn't stand up. And so my doctor was like, okay, that's not normal. So we did an endoscopy and colonoscopy and that's when they found that in my bowel and both of my duodenum, this was November last year, 2019, that um it had officially like moved again and had returned because for a while there I was okay. And now, yeah, it popped up again. So basically I had... The most scariest surgery of my life last November. It was crazy. It was, I had to meet a whole new team because, like, I needed specialists for this. And apparently, what was done on me was quite experimental and it's not your common pathway when it's in a, in this small little tube. Usually, they would do what is called a whipple and which is also very dangerous. They completely rejig your whole insides so they start attaching new tubes to new body organs which aren't originally like that excuse me but that's the only way for like it to survive kind of thing and I remember sitting there and going well what's the likelihood of it going wrong and they're like very high and there's even a percentage of people who have this whipple surgery who never leave hospital because nothing attaches and everything just leaks and I was like well that's not what a, a life that I want and it was full on And so there was only two other options. It was either he opened me up, retracted what he could and then closed me up or he opened me up, couldn't do anything and then it was back to drugs. But the drugs, the thing is, is like we were kind of against a clock because of how small this tube was and I already half the tumour was already in there. It was like, well, how long do we really have to play with any kind of concoction of drugs? And my oncologist was like, we need this surgery, we need this done like now. And I was just was like oh, my God, it was the first time that I truly ever felt proper fear. Like, I know I was scared every other time, but it hadn't really, like, woken me up to the sense that this could genuinely, like, affect my life in the sense that I could die. Like, I was very aware of my mortality. Everyone is when you get told you have cancer. But this surgery just, like, put a huge spotlight on it. And so with this surgery, I remember – Oh, it, like if anyone asks me like what happened in the months of August and January of like 2019 to 2020, I could not tell you. It was the biggest blur, so many hospital appointments, so many anxiety attacks, so much fear and crying and just genuine feeling of loss. I was so scared that I was like I wasn't ready to die. No one's ready to die. But like at 25, I was like, no, this seriously can't be happening to me again. Like this was my third time going through this. I was like, you can't be serious. And so we had the surgery. It was rather successful in the sense that he managed to like remove the obstruction and they got rid of the tumor in the bowel. But to this day, like I still have stage four cancer and It blows my mind to say it out loud all the time because it doesn't feel real. But then my body obviously shows signs that it's definitely gone through it.
1: And yeah, it all stemmed from a mole on my toe and my life has never been the same. That story is just, it's honestly mind-blowing. That you've gone through that in your in your early and mid twenties, and it just seems so unfair.
0: I really wanted to ask you. You touched on the existential crisis that you had. I think you said at twenty, and I'm sure like it continues to be something that, because I think that like for you, I'd like I'd really love to know like how it affects, I guess, the way that you like approach each day? Because I I know 20-year-olds, I remember being 20, you're not thinking about that sort of stuff and you're not like, let's just make the most of today. And like, Mm. does that kind of like change the way that you approach each day?
2: Oh, look, definitely. So like the way, when I was at 20, it was kind of like, it was definitely the wake-up call, I guess, in the sense of, well, this is what matters in life. Like what actually matters is like your family, your friends and your relationships. And as I got older, it was kind of also like I used to place so much value on having a career, all these kinds of things that, of course, no one really realizes until you're in a situation that things can be taken away from you. And so every day I'm always have to be grateful that I've woken up, you know, like that I've opened my eyes and that I'm breathing. And I'm very aware of that. But there are definitely days where I'm just like, I wish I just had normal boy problems like, oh my God, mm. like I wish mm. that I get out. could, you know, just have a good cry over like a, a sad movie and then get it over with and then I'm fine. But mm. it's really hard because a lot of things are triggering now. It's really hard. Like I'll watch any kind of TV and as soon as they drop the word cancer or they show a funeral, I have to turn it off. Mm. My life is very much, it almost feels like there was a really great article in New Yorker, and I'm going to like butch what she said, but it was kind of like any kind of crowd that wasn't a crowd in the cancer center feels like a crowd of alienation. And so basically whenever I'm in other spaces where no one understands, I always feel like I'm isolated and I'm someone else, which is true. But that's the cancer experience is that it's very much just you're alone. And no matter how many people tell you that, you know, I'm there for you or, you know, we love you. You're always like, oh, I know, but you're always alone.
1: I look at your Instagram and I look at your platforms and I think to myself, like, I just admire the courage and determination that you have because you write the most beautiful captions. And, you know, I see oh, how much you. support your partner Alexander gives you and, like, you've got a beautiful family and, you know, it does break <laughs> my heart to think that, you know, that feeling of still being alone on that journey, even though you do have that support system around you, it's real. Yeah. Like, that's that's the experience that you're going through. Yeah. It just goes to put everything
2: even more in perspective now. I was going to say with COVID-19, I've never felt more alone because for me, And for a lot of cancer patients, the outside world was that little bit of saving grace where we could go out and kind of forget our problems. Whereas now we're so hyper aware of our health and it's like far out. There would be be great to be times where we don't have to be because like having to always think about, you know, someone could infect me with something that could definitely like screw up my treatment process or like get me accessible, like treatment like all of that has definitely affected other cancer patients that I know and it's just it's really really scary so when COVID-19 was like the first round back in March and May a part of me was actually like a little I was obviously devastated but a little selfish part of me was actually a little bit glad that people were kind of getting to experience what it was like for all the people who have health problems disability problems Mm -hmm. chronic illnesses who have cancer we spend a amount of time inside and we can't do anything about it and so when everything hit a party it was like a little bit of people will be able to understand in a very small way what life is like for people like us because we're often forgotten about and but that's just
1: that's yeah. the sad
2: truth and it really I really feel for everyone who has a disability or who works with cancer and stuff and a lot of workplaces wouldn't accommodate once upon a time to say, oh no, you can't work from home and join in on a Zoom call. And yet now the world can do it because that's what, you know, they need it to do to make everything accessible. And it just goes to make you, it makes you think being like, well, everything is accessible if you're just willing to, you know, change a little bit.
0: Absolutely.
1: Yeah. That's a really, really good yeah. point.
0: Yeah, but I also think it's really important to have the conversation as women together. Like I think Joe and I were, we were in a we were in that meeting room, Joe, and I showed her like that mole that I had on my that had sort of was it, it was it was just worrying me. She was like, "How I know, go and get it checked?" She was like quite serious about it, and yeah. I was like, "Yeah, that's mm. this is where we need to be. Like we need yeah. to be telling each other." Come on, exactly. just, you know, go and get it checked.
2: And the thing is, it's the likelihood of it actually being a melanoma is very low. The whole movement, everything about it has changed so many of my friends' perceptions with the sun, which has just been amazing to watch. Like I have a friend who used to be the beach goer. She was constantly every free weekend, no matter winter, summer, in the sun, baking herself. And she'd always come to work and be like, oh, look at my tan. And I just remember going... It's nothing to be proud of, but okay, for you right now, I get it. Fine. And with call time, she goes, I had the biggest wake up call of my life when all of that happened. And she's like, and I know you, and I didn't even take it seriously until I sat there and I read through the account. I read the stories, I read the stats. And she's like, I don't go in the sun anymore. I wear SPF 50 every day. And I'm like, oh, that just makes my heart sing. But It takes education, right? And we all have done it. We've all gotten burnt. We live in Australia. Like we have very intense UV rays over here course that you can read the UV index to determine when when you shouldn't, shouldn't wear sunscreen. In my opinion, you should wear it every day. It doesn't matter what the UV says.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I was going to say for, for anyone who spends all of summer tanning or hates the feel of sunscreen and would rather not wear it, mm. what's your message for those people? Because we've kind of touched on the skin checks thing, but what about the people that are just still refusing to follow the whole sunscreen rule? It's really hard with people like that because they're so ingrained in
2: their beliefs that they're like, no, it's, you know, they're chemicals or no, I just, you know, a tan is healthy. I think the only Mm -hmm. thing you can do with people like that is to put a whole bunch of really intense images of what skin cancer scars and skin cancers look like in front of their faces. To me, that's the only way a message is going to get through. You can talk to them until you're blue in the face but they really will be like, no, I'm invincible. I've got olive skin. I don't, I tan, I don't burn. We've all heard it before, but what it's something about seeing those scars and, oh boy, have I seen some scars. And it puts it into perspective being like, that could be you because of your
0: behavior right now that you just have to stop. I think it's really interesting what you said about the olive skin, because I read in your article about, there's this like, misconception that olive skin and because I have olive skin. So I really thought that when I was younger that like, I don't really burn.
1: And that's what all my friends say as well, because they're Italian and they're like, oh no, I just tan in the sun. And I'm like, no, it's just, that's not a thing like that. That must be one of the myths that you hear constantly.
2: Yeah, it is because I actually have. So my dad's Italian, my mum's South American, technically like my skin is olive complexion and When even skin cancer doctors are like, you're so interesting. Cause like, obviously I wouldn't know what the stats are behind of like, if olive skin is like more susceptible to tanning, whatever, doesn't matter. There are cases of it anyway. It's like your skin tone doesn't mean just because, you know, or you tan and don't burn the fact that you're tanning. If you're feeling any kind of that feel like we all know that burning feeling on our skin, we're in the sun for too long. That's your skin cells literally in trauma being like, get me out of here. So it doesn't matter being olive. It doesn't matter if you've got dark skin. It doesn't matter if you're pale or pale people are very aware of it because they know that basically they feel like they're on fire when they're in the sun. Like it is just, I guess I would say it's common sense, but a lot of people just don't follow it. And it absolutely baffles me that people will do everything to look after their health. They'll work out three times a day. They'll drink all the smoothies. They'll be vegan. They'll eat clean. They'll do X, Y, Z, yet they'll still tan in the sun. And I think we just need to really educate and remind people that our skin is so important. It does so much for us. And I think We just need to remember that because a lot of people don't recall or even think about it. They just think, oh, it's just a protective layer. That's it. It's like, no, it does so much more for you. You need to look after it.
1: Yeah, totally. And standards these days around like looking tanned to look hot, I guess. And I just like could not care less about that at this point. And that your story really drove that home for me because I used to love looking tanned and I still will use fake tan, but I just couldn't. I can't think of any reason why I would want to tan my skin in the sun anymore. The whole excuse,
0: I don't like how sunscreen feels. Like that's just over because there are so oh incredible God. formulations.
2: It's so Exactly. It's so gone. Like there is no excuse now. And everyone's like, oh, but it breaks me out. And I'm like, do you know how many other sunscreens right now that are like top tier formulation that you can just switch to? And I'm sure you'll find something that you like. Oh, there's so many brands that I love. I really love Ultraviolet. Same. Beautiful homegrown Melbourne. So do we. Supreme? Are you a Supreme? I'm a Supreme for me. Me too. (laughs) Just suits my skin better. But honestly, this idea that it's going to leave like a white cast or like all that and I'm like, no.
0: It just feels like primer. The Supreme screen is literally like my favourite moisturiser. Like it does not feel like sunscreen. Mm. It doesn't taste like sunscreen. It doesn't get in your eyes. Like, yeah.
2: Yeah. (laughs) All especially for like, I guess, the women and the men that are in our 20s now who I often talk about and anyone who's older, they always just think of sunscreen as, like, really white and thick and what, like, the Cancer Council used to, like, put on TV to show you what would protect your skin. But that is, like, 25 years ago. Like, mm-hmm. we've just come so far that, and, like, sunscreen's fun. Like, also, if yeah. I can't get you on the melanoma fact, I will get you that sunscreen is anti-aging. Just freaking put yes. it
0: on. You'll be younger. Preach. <laughs> yeah. <Fine. laughs> <It's strange. laughs> So let's have a bit of change of pace. So there's more, like much more to you than just your melanoma story. You were a writer and a talented one at that. I would love, we would love to hear about your passion for writing. Oh, well, it took me a little while to get there
2: actually. Like now that I think about it, it's like it felt like a true calling, but I just never really followed it. I'd always loved telling stories and using words and, you know, I was amazed at how like you could read something on a page and like, even if it's fiction, it's not even real. And you just felt something in your heart. And I was like, Oh, I like that. I can do that. Like I'm good with words. And so, yeah, it was like a, a late bloomer, I guess, in that sense. Like I'd always loved it, but I never really thought I could make it a career or anything. Trust that it's not exactly my career right now. It's just something I do on the side. I love it. And I want to be a published author one day. I want to write a book. I want to write many books. I want to, if I could spend my time writing all day, every day, I really would. But at the moment, it's just been super hard for me with Corona and with my health and all this kinds of stuff is like writer's block is so real. But for me, writing is just the most beautiful outlet. And I write so much for me. It's my way that I can process everything that's gone on in my life. And who knows what the future holds, honestly. But yeah, it's just, you know, when you find something that you love and you're like, wow, I can't believe it took me like this this long to get here
1: mm-hmm. but um mm-hmm.
2: I found
0: my way there I got it I want to read your Italian romance story <laughs> that's my <laughs> request well like ideally ideally I will
2: be writing a novel kind of like not kind of like essays I don't know but I've always wanted to write about that experience in Venice with that with Alexander because um it's just honestly to me I was like when I was living it I was like I'm living in a f***ing Hollywood film at the moment like what is my life? And so I would love to put that on paper. And then like in my head, it's going to get like the attention of Reese Witherspoon and then it's going to become a film. And then yes. like, I'm done. <laughs> yes.
1: Oh. Honestly, manifestation is my specialty, so I will manifest that for yes. you, Natalie. And I can guarantee, I'll buy any any book that you ever write. <laughs> we'll be petitioning Reese with a spoon on this podcast for sure. You mentioned that you worked for Birdie for a period of time, and since this is a beauty podcast, we thought that we would ask you at least one beauty question because I've seen particularly how much you rock a red lip on Instagram, <laughs> and so I thought maybe you could share some of your favorite beauty products with us. Oh, my God. Oh. So one thing that's actually really funny is, like, in the last
2: 10 months or so, I've become skincare obsessed. So, oh, my God, my favourite product.
0: I want to know what the red lip is. What is your favourite lip? To be honest, my favourite red lip
2: is Flower Beauty. I can't remember. It's, like, poppy or whatever. It is such a good red lip. It blows my mind. It's 10 bucks from Chemist Warehouse. It's Drew Barrymore's line that she has. And oh, it is, yes, honestly, yes. like, there's Chanel, I have Chanel lipsticks, MAC, I have NARS, and I always go back to picking up Flower Beauty. It is really, really beautiful. Everyone always asks me where it's from and they're so flabbergasted I'm like, it cost me $10. Yeah,
1: another <laughs> shout-out for Chemist Warehouse, Hannah. We love giving shout-outs. We outs. love Chemist <laughs> Warehouse. We shout-out
0: to them all the time.
2: <laughs> what else? I love, I love La Roche-Posay, their pigment Clar, I think it is, their serum for um, pigmentation that... Mm-hmm. Completely yep. changed my skin. That is a true hero. I love go to their face hero. That for immunotherapy dry skin, like for me, that was a complete savior. A whole bunch of sunscreen. I love the Mecca to save face. Ultraviolet, even sun from the Cancer Council. Really good sunscreens. Also aspect. I also am a big fan of Liquid Gold. Like that is. Holy grail product for me. Like when I started using that, I was like, how have I not using this been using this before? Honestly,
1: <laughs> wow. And I've just recently started trying Beauty Pacific, which I'm really, really liking. Mm, I think you'll discover some more from that brand that you like. I saw
0: your post, your Adore Beauty haul the other day. So you've got some um, cosmeceutical skincare in the mail oh, coming to you, Natalie. Oh, that's so nice. I'm so excited. <laughs> I actually had it organised before this interview was organised. Oh, my "Cool, That's perfect.
1: Yes. That's everything's aligned. Perfect timing. (laughs) Oh, thank you so much for chatting to us today, Natalie. As much as your story is really heart-wrenching in some parts, it just uh, I'm so glad that you're still here with us to share this story and to bring awareness to melanoma as well and to encourage people. I know that your story was really life-changing for me, in a mindset sense and the way that I approach sun safety. And I hope that that has translated to other people as well. And for anyone that hasn't heard your story yet, that they go back and read some of those amazing articles that have been written that cover your story in a little bit more detail. So... Thank you so much for joining us today. No,
2: thank you both so much for having me. I'm honestly so touched that someone like me has come on this podcast. I'm like, oh my god. And to hear that <laughs> like my stories like, you know, affected you personally like Joanna, that's just wow. Wow.
0: But thank you again. I've had a lovely time. Thank you so much.